Hey, Roundstable listeners, we have an exciting opportunity for you to take a seat at the table. The Roundstable is looking to diversify and expand our team of co-hosts. We are looking for individuals who are interested in becoming a regular co-host and who want to take on a leadership role at the Roundstable. Interested applicants should have strong skills in critical appraisal of evidence-based medicine. The Roundstable has been downloaded over 200,000 times from a total of 138 countries worldwide. So we're looking for great people to help us continue to build this exciting platform. There is a lot of exciting work going on at the Rounds Table, and we would love for you to be a part of it. If you're interested, please contact myself with a simple expression of interest at kieran.quinn at mail.utoronto.ca. That's K-I-E-R-A-N dot Q-U-I-N-N at mail.utoronto.ca. The deadline for applications is the end of March. We look forward to hearing from you. Now on with the show. This is The Rounds Table. Hey listeners, welcome back to another show. Thanks for joining us. we got a great show lined up for you and none other than Dr. Paxton back to take us through two exciting articles for today's show. Paxton, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks, Kieran. Glad to be back as always. Although I, uh, I heard a rumor that you're looking to upgrade. <laughs> always looking to upgrade on The Rounds Table. In fact, we're looking to expand, and those who are interested has probably heard the call for new co-hosts. I just want to remind you that the deadline for that is March 16th, so please do send me an email, kieran.quinn at mail.utoronto.ca, to tell me that you're interested, and we'd love to hear from you. All right, Paxton, why don't we jump into the show and introduce your article for the week? Sure, I'll, I'll just carry on like my feelings aren't hurt, but... Um... <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, the article that I chose to talk about today is another big cardiology trial that just came out two weeks ago uh, in the New England Journal. It's entitled Catheter Ablation for Atrial Fibrillation with Heart Failure, or Castle AF. Castle. Are you the king of your own castle? Tell me, Paxton, what is the bottom line for this article? So this is an article that was uh, led by a, a man named Nasser Marouche out of Utah, Salt Lake City, but was a, a large trial that uh, happened in multiple different countries. The bottom line for this trial is that in a randomized control trial enrolling about 50, 350 patients with AFib and symptomatic heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, catheter ablation for rhythm control markedly reduced a primary outcome composed of mortality and hospitalization for heart failure. I have so many questions as to why this is important, but see if you can keep it short for us. Why is catheter ablation in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction important in 2018? Yeah, so I, I chose this article for a couple of reasons. The first being, I guess, that both of these issues, both AFib and CHF, are really common, right? We see these, I don't know, 25% of the patients that I see, I'm guessing, would, would have one of these comorbidities. They're very, very common. And then in the past, rate versus rhythm control in this population set in patients with heart failure, um, rate versus rhythm control for AFib have, have thought to be equivalent to one another. Now, ablation has been looked at in a number of smaller studies, but usually using surrogate endpoints like increase in LV ejection fraction or time spent in normal sinus rhythm. So it, there's never really been a strong indication for referral for ablation in these patients. That being said, the reason I show this article is not only that it's a fairly common question, but that the reduction in the primary outcome in this trial is massive. So we're talking a number needed treat of six. Wow. Well, let's find out a little bit more about it and whether we believe that number. So Paxton, what was the design of this study and where specifically did it take place? Yeah, so I, I'm, I was on the same page, Kieran, is that when I saw that number, I wanted to read this paper because I needed to find out if this was if this was real. 
Um, so this is, as I mentioned, it is a randomized control trial. It's an open label RCT held at multiple different centers. They, they included 33 sites across the US, several countries in Europe, as well as Australia, and ran the trial between 2008 and 2016. And who are the patients in this trial? Who did they include to answer this question? So uh, as I alluded to, again, they were patients with fairly common issues, that being AFib and CHF, but there were a fairly specific patient set that they did enroll. So they took adults with known atrial fibrillation, and that could be either paroxysmal or persistent AFib. Um, They needed to have had an absence of response to or an intolerance to or an unwillingness to take at least one rhythm control medication in the past. And and that's sort of an important point that we'll get back to later. And they needed to have symptomatic CHF. So they needed an ejection fraction of less than 35%. They needed to be a minimum of NYHA class two in terms of their symptoms. And as this was a biotronic trial, they they needed to have either an ICD or CRT device in place for the tracking of AFib, but it just so happens they had to be biotronic devices. (laughs) Fair enough. Although I do think it's pretty cool though that the device component to this trial really gives an objective measure of uh, the burden of AFib, which is kind of neat, biotronic or not. So tell me, Paxson, what was the intervention? How did they compare the two, two arms of this trial? Yeah, yeah, I agree with you, Kieran. It lets them track the amount of AFib and the response to, to either treatment arm with very precise accuracy. So the intervention in this trial is that amongst these patients that were enrolled, they were randomized to receive either medical therapy for their atrial fibrillation, and that could be either rate or rhythm control as determined by the treating physician, or they'd be randomized to receive catheter ablation. So patients, when they enrolled, they were stratified by a number of variables, including the center, uh, the type of AFib, again, paroxysmal versus permanent, uh, the type of device that they had in place, and the indication for the ICD that they had. Uh, They were also all given a five-week run-in so that their CHF meds could be optimized and standardized um, um, prior to uh, beginning um, down the, uh, the treatment arm. So tell me about the ablation strategy that they employed. Yeah, so a pretty traditional ablation strategy, I suppose I'd say. So they did pulmonary vein isolation, and additional lesions could be placed as decided by the operator at the time of the ablation itself. The operators were allowed to use a preferred system, so it could be RFA or it could be cryo, um, whatever their, their preference was. And all patients received a TEE before the procedure. All right. What about on the uh, medical therapy side of things? How did they treat these patients? Yeah, so on the flip side, they left it um, very much up to the treating physician. A rhythm control strategy was, quote, recommended, but they were allowed to to choose their treatment strategy according to their kind of particular preferences. If rate control was targeted or was selected, they would target a rate of 60 to 80 beats per minute at rest and 90 to 115 with activity, which is, I think, a reasonable target for rate control. And then both groups were followed up at both three and six months, and then annually after that uh, for reassessment. Okay. So tell us, what were the, I mean, this number needed to treat of six, this dramatic effect, what was the primary outcome? So the primary outcome was a composite outcome, as we're seeing so often in these great big cardiology trials right now, but it, but it, it is a composite outcome that's made up of fairly meaningful endpoints. So one of them is death from any cause, uh, and the other one is, is an unplanned hospitalization for CHF. That was their primary composite outcome. They did measure a number of secondary outcomes, including death from any cause, hospitalization for heart failure. They measured um, LV ejection fraction over time. They measured the amount of time spent in atrial fibrillation, a performance on a six-minute walk test. They looked at left atrial dimension. So they looked at a number of other variables for their secondary outcomes as well. But yeah, I agree. Very important uh, primary outcome. Uh, these sort of hard outcomes, which as you alluded to in the rationale, really haven't been looked at uh, in a meaningful or unbiased way in prior studies. 
So take us through it. What did they find? So before I, I get into the results, I'll just highlight one other piece from the methods that I think is important here is that they employed what they call that three-stage adaptive group sequential design, which I, I have to say I've never quite heard that description before. But essentially what it is, is, is there were two interim analyses performed during the study itself that were pre-planned, and they were event-driven interim analyses. So they are meant to perform interim analysis at both 65 and 130 events, and finally cap the study at 195 events. But unfortunately, they had ended up having to skip their second interim analysis and ultimately uh, cut the study short just due to lack of success in rolling patients. So they really only ended up with 133 overall events instead of 195. That brings us then to the results and what did they actually see here? And what was really striking, at least at first blush, is this massive difference in those events. So in their results, they, they ended up randomizing a total of 363 patients and they followed them for oh, just over three years. The average patient enrolled in the study uh, was 64 years old, primarily a male, uh, generally an NYHA class 2 or 3. 50% of them actually had a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, which really surprised me. <clears throat> the ejection fraction on average was 32%, and 2 out of 3 patients had persistent AFib, so slightly more persistent than paroxysmal. Okay, and then tell us about sort of the baseline statistics for the ablation group versus the medical patients. Yeah, so uh, within the ablation group, 85% of them ended up receiving the procedure. Um, so actually not all patients who were enrolled there ended up receiving an ablation after the run-in period. On average, 1.3 ablations per patient, so every fourth patient needed a second ablation. And within the, the medical group, actually 10% of those patients ended up uh, receiving an ablation as well. Um, but amongst those that ended up being treated medically, 30% of them were treated with rhythm control. So 70% of them actually were treated with uh, um, rate control. Okay. And so then what is the uh, the coup d'etat? What is the primary endpoint? Uh, so so this is this is where things get really interesting because as I mentioned, the, the outcome difference that they showed was massive. So they showed uh, in their primary composite endpoint that 28.5% of patients in the ablation group and 44.6% of patients in the medical therapy group uh, experienced uh, the composite primary outcome at the end of three years. So an absolute difference of 15% which translates to a number needed to treat of six, or as they defined it, um, when they extrapolate to at 36 months, the NNT was eight. So when we're talking about ma major outcomes like death and hospitalization, this is a very significant uh, finding. Yeah, absolutely. That's very impressive. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, the validity of it, but what, tell me what was driving that primary outcome when you split the uh, the primary composite into its individual components? So I, I can already sense your skepticism, Kieran. Yeah, when I look at these, when we look at the secondary outcomes, uh, again, big differences mostly across the board. So in death, there was a 12% reduction and 12% absolute difference between the ablation group and the medical therapy group. In heart failure, there was about a 15% difference, or, or sorry, in admissions for heart failure, a 15% difference between the two groups. There was improved six-minute walk test results. There was a very significant increase in LV ejection fraction from 0.2% in the medical therapy group up to 8% in the ablation group. So really, really uh, impressive results in most of their secondary outcomes. And actually, one kind of interesting piece when you actually looked at time in AFib is that even those in the ablation group still spent, on average, just over 20% of their time in atrial fibrillation. So it, uh, it wasn't completely successful, although that's compared to 63% in those uh, who were treated medically. Okay. So tell, tell us your take, Paxton. What are your concerns or your positive takes on this trial? 
Yeah, so I think I think we've hinted at a couple things already that give us pause when we're reading at this trial. But the first thing to me is 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 when you see a result that is this dramatic, um, I'm immediately skeptical because you know we we don't frequently see in this day and age differences in outcomes like we're, like we're seeing here. So I think there's a couple important um, limitations that that we can point out in this trial. One of them could be the fact that this is an open label trial, so there is a lack of blinding. I think that it was a reasonable decision for them to structure the trial in this way because blinding would be would be quite difficult but it makes me think back to our episode in December looking at the Orbita trial how significant this non non-blinding effect really can be yeah yeah it's true and I mean you're looking at an outcome like hospitalization or death death is definitely impossible to to influence one way or the other hospitalization maybe less so and also just when in the treatment and you know how aggressively you're pushing certain medications in one arm versus the other you know definitely you can see some differences there yeah there's there's certainly many ramifications of that that we don't really appreciate just in reading the paper another limitation that i kind of mentioned in the beginning is that the criteria that we used to select patients in this was was quite stringent and maybe not representative of the of the usual patient that you or I would see and that and these patients were in their early 60s with very severe cardiomyopathies so um certainly patients that I know and recognize but but maybe not the classic patient that I would think of that comes in with AFib and CHF who you know has probably got an ischemic cardiomyopathy and is their 70s or 80s we can also point out that there was a relatively small number of events um in the trial and in fact as as I mentioned earlier they had to end the trial early for lack of uh, events Right. And I think, I mean, I agree with all those points as well, that you're dealing with a fairly select group. And so the generalizability to others is not so robust. And also, you know, as was pointed out to me in one of the criticisms I'd read around this, that if you look at the number of individuals who were lost to follow up, so to speak, in one arm versus the other, it was over twice the number in the ablation arm. So 23 lost to follow up versus 10. And if you comparatively look at the numbers in the primary outcome in ablation versus medical therapy, it's 51 people in the ablation and 82 people in the medical therapy. So if you assumed that every single patient in the lost to follow-up in the ablation arm died, and that's why they were lost to follow-up in a worst-case scenario analysis, then your numbers and your, you know, your effect size get much, much closer together, um, and it becomes less impressive on a riskier procedure compared to medical therapy alone. Yeah, absolutely, Kieran. Now you're re- now now you're really pointing out some of the some of the the major weaknesses here is that that the number of patients that were lost to follow up and really the fact that they didn't even try and address that even in their discussion was really uh, surprising and and pretty concerning I think because there was a very significant difference between uh, between the two groups. And the last limitation that I'd like to point out is just again what I mentioned in the beginning is that this trial enrolled patients who by definition had already failed or were intolerant to or were unwilling to take a rhythm control agent. And then they could be randomized to an arm where they would preferentially try and put them on a rhythm control agent. So that was a little bit I took I had to wrap my head around that. But that then makes it far less surprising to me that patients in that arm didn't do particularly well on a rhythm control strategy. They were sort of setting themselves up in that way. So I think that is uh, another uh, fairly key weakness here. So we could talk about this all day and we don't have time to, unfortunately. Take it home for us. First of all, before we get into the main learning points, do you believe the results of this trial or not? So 
I guess I'm kind of undecided, Kieran, because because of some of the limitations that we pointed out. You know, the, the results that they're showing are pretty impressive, but there are some significant drawbacks here that make me not quite sure how to use this. For me, you know, I think the bottom line when I really step back is I think, you know, if I had a patient who is in their early 60s with that severe of a cardiomyopathy and had already failed a rhythm control agent, that's a patient that I already would be considering very strongly to refer to EP. So maybe this reinforces that thought process. But as for whether I could extrapolate this to the large majority of patients that I see that have AFib and some degree of heart failure, I'm really not that convinced. And as you said, this is, a, this is an invasive procedure. Um, as an aside, they had quite good outcomes from their ablation with very few adverse events, but we do know that this is a, an invasive procedure that does carry a risk with it. So in the absence of really understanding whether this applies to most of my patients, I'm not sure that it's going to change a lot of what I do, but I should say it's much easier to sit on the fence because there's actually a, another trial called the Cabana trial, which is asking a very similar question in a broader population and is coming out later this year. So it's probably easier to just step aside for now, wait till summer till the Cabana trial is being published. And then using both of, both of these papers together, I think it can really inform our decision. And I think we kind of would say the same thing as far as my interpretation goes, that I think that this trial is valid in a select population so that ablation therapy does play an important role in reducing hard outcomes and not just symptoms, but it needs to be applied very carefully. And the magnitude of its effect may be a little bit overstated in this trial due to the limitations we talked about. So you will wait eagerly to find out if you're a cabana man or a castle man or you're both, but let's move on because we've talked to this to death. Which brings me to my second article for the week, um, and it's looking at the association between myocardial infarction and influenza. And we are in the depths of the influenza season here in North America. And Jeffrey Kwong, who is a researcher out of uh, the Institute of Clinical Value of Sciences here in Toronto, published this with his colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine on January 2018. And it just so happens that one of uh, a researcher I respect very highly named Michael Campitelli was also a co-author on this, unbeknownst to me before I chose this for the roundtable. So congratulations, Mike. Well, this is certainly a pretty topical paper for me these days. I don't know what your experience has been like this winter, but I feel like every winter the flu is just worse and worse. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so that takes us to the bottom line, if your interest is tweaked at all at this point yet that this is a self-controlled case series study of 364 hospitalizations for individuals with laboratory-confirmed influenza infection who were also hospitalized for acute myocardial infarction. And what it found was that there was was a significant association between the two and also other respiratory viruses, but especially for influenza, with an observed six-fold increased risk of hospitalization for myocardial infarction within one week of development of influenza. Wow. So that's a pretty impressive uh, result in its own, Kieran, for this paper. So tell us, give us a little bit more background and why you decided that this was an important uh, article to feature today. So Paxton, um, as you said, acute respiratory infections are common this time of year. And they're kind of like a stress test on the body. Acute MI can be triggered by uh, an acute respiratory infection, but the studies that we have to date really have been limited in the significant bias that they've had in defining the association between the two. And there's been other factors that have maybe confounded that, uh, that result. But if you put it in the context of something I think interesting, the framework of whether you should be getting influenza vaccines or not, if you can show that influenza, of which we have a sometimes moderate to effective vaccine against, 
could actually cause or be associated strongly with MI, then you could make an argument that influenza vaccination should be pushed even more so than it already is for the outcome of reducing MI in theory. Okay, so we need to show that the flu vaccine works and that uh, the flu uh, can cause MIs, uh, and then presumably we can make that leap. Mm -hmm. We could at least set up a future study to help answer that even more carefully. So I think it's an important study to, to do. Absolutely. And as I said, just given the amount of flu out there, I'm with you. So let's dig down into it a little bit and tell me a little bit more about how this study was designed and, and, and where it took place. So this was a retrospective observational self-controlled case series study. And it included all adults who were over the age of 35. They didn't want to just pick over the age of 18 because they wanted people who were at least able to develop an MI, um, so slightly older than 18, uh, who lived in Ontario and had testing for respiratory viruses um, and who were also hospitalized for an acute myocardial infarction. And as a side point, if testing was repeated on the same patient within 14 days, that testing is for respiratory viruses, then the second test results were excluded to avoid duplication of the same sort of things going on in the study. Okay. And um, tell us a little bit more about what the actual primary question here was. So they used data from respiratory virus testing in 11 public health Ontario laboratories and eight academic hospital-based laboratories. And they linked these results to data from the individual patients who had this testing done. And they did all of this to answer the primary question as to whether there was an association that existed between those with a confirmed respiratory viral infection, that would be influenza A and B, uh, RSV, adenovirus, and, and several other common respiratory virus that are tested for, um, as well as the development of an acute myocardial infarction. Okay, so I, I'm gonna gonna stop you there, Kieran. I know you're, you're a ClinEpi guy. I just need you to take a step back and explain to me a little bit more. What is a self-case-controlled study design? So um, that's a good question. I'm on my way to being a ClinEpi guy, I guess you would say, but um, I had to read around this a little myself. And I think we should just spend a minute or two clarifying what this is without going into too much detail. So essentially what you do is you define an exposure period. So in this case, you're tested positive for viral infection and then you carry forward for a week. So you have a week of exposure to, to confirmed respiratory infection. Um, and then you look at the time period during that seven-day window where you're infected, as well as before, so one year before and one year after the infection, and you quantify the rate of your outcome, in this case an MI, for those individuals. And you do it for the same individual. So in other words, you compare the development of MI in that individual before, during, and after the infection, and you quantify the ratio of the incidence of MI between these time periods to define the risk of an MI overall inside and outside the risk period of being infected with a respiratory virus. Okay, so they're defining their risk over this time, then presumably their atherosclerotic burden isn't changing dramatically over that year. So so this becomes their variable of interest. Okay. That's one of the assumptions of the model that they've used to analyze this, correct? Okay. So tell me then, uh, with that out of the way, what are the primary outcomes that they're looking for? Yeah, it's as simple as that. Uh, well, they found some interesting stuff. So they had just under 150,000 influenza testing episodes between the years 2008 and 2015. And of those, just over 19,000 testing episodes were positive for influenza, which is about 13%. And then they linked that to 364 hospitalizations for acute myocardial infarction, 
and that occurred in 332 patients who had a laboratory-confirmed diagnosis of influenza. So what do these patients look like? Well, they were typically in their mid to late 70s. Most of them had prior coronary artery disease and multiple risk factors for coronary artery disease, like hypertension and dyslipidemia. And only about a third of individuals had received vaccination for influenza. And uh, during the risk interval itself around influenza, uh, what did they find there? Yeah, so remember, that's a seven-day period around the influenza infection. There were about 20 admissions per week during that high-risk period following uh, confirmation of your, your respiratory virus. And if you looked at the intervals around that before and after, it was only about three per week. And so that corresponded to a just over a six-fold increase in the risk of hospitalization for MI within a week of the development of influenza. Huh. So that seems like a pretty dramatic difference. It is. It's fairly dramatic. And the thing that they did to sort of make sure that this was a true finding is they did a bunch of interesting secondary sensitivity analyses that tried to look at the risks during different times of the year, since we know that influenza is a seasonal infection, you know, did things change outside of that? They looked at different respiratory viruses, all of some of the ones that I mentioned earlier. They looked at the risk around non-viral infections. And then they looked at uh, hospitalizations for diabetes and diabetes-associated complications in relation to confirmed influenza infection, where you would expect there be, to be no real strong association between the two. And all of these results were consistent with the primary finding in the sense that these results appear to be valid. So just to be clear then, when they looked at the other respiratory viruses, they didn't see this kind of increase around a RSV infection, for instance? No, they did. They did see it. It just wasn't as robust or as large an effect as they did see with uh, influenza. And that makes biological sense because the other respiratory viruses are very often less severe in nature. And influenza, it would, you would sort of think of as one of the most severe respiratory viral infections that we know of. I gotcha. Okay. All right. So then taking a step back, what is what is your take on this article then, Kieran? Do you, do you, do you buy it? Yeah, I, I, I got to say, I mean, I buy it for a bunch of reasons. One, I think the methodology is an interesting approach and it's a sound way to do it in the limitations of administrative data. But two, it, it makes biological sense. We see a lot of people who get very sick with influenza. It is a very severe illness, especially when the particular strain at that time of year is bad. And so people who are at risk for coronary artery disease and MI um, have an event due to the physiological stress of the infection in, in and of itself. And so I think that putting it all together and putting it in the context of the prior literature and what we know, it all it all fits. It all is concordant with each other. So uh, I think the, the logical follow-up question then there is, um, are these, do you think these are actual plaque rupture, like type 1 MIs, or do you think this is more of a type 2 MI situation? Yeah, that that we may not necessarily know in the level of an administrative data set because Things are coded based on the diagnosis that the treating physicians, you know, made and, and sort of the details of the notes that the abstractors put together. Whether they're true plaque rupture or not, you and I both know that sometimes elevations of troponin and mild ECG changes are called an NSTEMI in some, and for the exact same patient, they're called, you know, troponitis due to demand in another, and both could be coded as an MI or not. So... Either way, I, you know, the, the pathophysiology underlying what's going on, maybe we don't get that level of detail here, but I think regardless, it's an important uh, association that shouldn't be ignored. 
Yeah, yeah. I just look at this and I wonder uh, if you did the exact same analysis around emissions for something like sepsis, for instance, whether whether you'd see the same uh, the same response. Is this is this a marker of influenza and the fact that it makes you really sick, or is there something particular to the virus itself uh, that is increasing the risk of these MIs? But I guess we can't quite. Uh, yeah, an interesting question. Definitely an interesting question. I don't know the answer to that, but uh, if you know out there, listeners, and you have an idea about the pathophysiology of influenza on its effect on the cardiovascular system, do do write us and let us know. It'd be, it would be great to know. Well, very interesting article nonetheless, Kieran. The only thing I would just leave the listeners with is that this shouldn't be cause for panic, so to, be, so to speak. Remember that the numbers are still small. So consider that 19,000 episodes of influenza were positive of the, of the you know, 170,000, 150,000 that were tested, um, and only 360 of all of that was associated with an MI. So 2% of all episodes of influenza were actually associated with an MI, albeit there was a much higher risk during uh, the period of infection than not. Um, so pay attention, but don't panic is what I'm trying to say. All right. Well, Paxton, it's time to move on to my favorite part of the show. It's the good stuff segment where we're talking about what we're reading about. Paxton, what is catching your eye this week? Okay, so Kieran, now tell us, you're a happily married man, correct? Absolutely. Shout out to Lynn Quinn. How many years uh, have you guys been married now? We are coming up on eight of all things, if you can believe it. Eight years. So I imagine that it's safe to say that you missed the Tinder revolution. I 100% miss the Tinder revolution and I feel like an old crony when, when people pull out Tinder because I don't even know how to operate it. <laughs> well, I hope this doesn't make you feel even more dated because I was reading this week about a new version of, of Tinder, which is actually designed for gorillas. Okay, tell me more. I'm, I'm intrigued. <laughs> so I was reading a, an article in The New Yorker that's talking about how they've been uh, designing a computer algorithm to assist with guerrilla matchmaking and that in in this you know this era there's there's been such a dramatic loss of gorillas that there's very very few of these animals left on earth so as a part of the efforts to uh, help rebuild the population they've actually developed this algorithm to help pair up the the, the best matches of gorillas uh, so they take a number of variables into the calculation for this algorithm including gorillas age their genetics themselves their lineage their experience and somehow they define what they call they define what they call personal chemistry they plug this into a computer and they, they're finding um, that they're having um, a lot of success matchmaking uh, between gorillas using you know this this uh, this uh, new age version of tinder Unreal. Who would have thought that it could be used for gorillas? Fantastic. I think it's fantastically interesting. Well, I did not read about gorillas and Tinder this week. I read about something totally different. It was a cool study about the direct costs of motorcycle crashes in Ontario uh, that was performed at the Institute of Clinical Value of Sciences. And it's just kind of some neat statistics just to quantify just how dangerous motorcycle driving actually is. So if you compare motorcycles with car crashes, motorcycle car crashes with car crashes, motorcycles have three times the rate of injury, 10 times the risk of severe injury, five times the rate of death, and six times the medical costs. And the sort of question that was left in my head and that some of the authors posited was, can we improve public health strategies overall to improve motorcycle safety? And I'm left to ask, should we even be driving motorcycles at all? Oh, yeah. I can just say from personal experience, I, I know a number of people who've been hurt fairly badly in motorcycle crashes, so uh, I'm not surprised at all. Well, 
who knows what the response will be, but I think it's an interesting research question nevertheless, and it caught my eye. Well, Paxton, thanks for another great episode on the show, and uh, we look forward to having you back sometime soon. Oh, always a pleasure, Karen. All right, take care. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Anthony Maher, segment developer, Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of The Roundstable, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research because who knows what they have in store for us.